following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. If you would, uh, open up your Bible or electronic device that has a Bible on it. We are in the book of Titus today. Titus is in the New Testament, right-hand side of your actual Bible, three swipes to the right if you're on an electronic version of the Bible. Um, Titus is kind of packed away in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospel accounts, and then you have uh, the book of Acts, the manifestation of the Spirit that was given to us through Christ, and then you have these letters to the church on how they should conduct themselves um, after Christ uh, ascended to the right hand of God. And uh, Titus, as we have been walking through this, is or was a pastor uh, to a place called Crete. And uh, as Titus is pastoring to people, he needs some help, as most pastors do, with the instructions of what it looks like to pastor a church properly. And so uh, the Apostle Paul comes to his aid, and he uh, writes to uh, Titus, and he gives him instructions. If you want to look, the big uh, numbers are the chapters, smaller numbers are the verses, and we'll walk through a little bit of how we got here because it's, it's important to get a running start, if you will, on the text. So in chapter 1, uh, Paul, who is a servant of God, writes to Titus. And he writes for the knowledge of truth. He writes for the gospel. It's amazing. Paul never writes to populate himself. He writes so that God would be glorified in everything that he thinks, everything that he says, and everything that he does. And he says, we have a common faith. In other words, one person isn't over another person. He says, we have this common faith, and it comes through uh, our faith in Christ. And so we have a common bond here in this place, and that is through Christ. We have all uh, pledged our declaration to God, trusting that Jesus' blood covers our sin. That's how you come into a relationship with God. It is only through faith in Christ. And then Paul picks on the elders first, which he should, and he tells them how they should conduct themselves. And then he talks about uh, men and he talks about women. And if you go to verse 2, he says, you need to teach sound doctrine. This is God's truth. This is God's word. I don't get up here every Sunday and, and say my opinion. I'd like to. Uh, we talk about sound doctrine. 66 books of the Bible that are useful for teaching and training. Paul wrote those words to Timothy and he says, these are sound things for you to live a life that would honor the Lord. So God's given you everything you need in order to honor him. And uh, in chapter 2, uh, he says this sound doctrine, looking at uh, the very end, he says, is something that we adorn. We put it on like, like makeup, if you will, to make ourselves beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. And so that sets us up for verse 11. And as I was studying for this passage, I came across a very uh, interesting old anonymous poem. And I'm going to share it with you now. And at the end, you can snap if you choose. Okay. <clears throat> My soul is like a barnyard duck. 
It muddles around in the barnyard muck, fat and lazy with useless wings, but sometimes when the north wind sings. And wild ducks fly overhead, it ponders something lost and dead. And then cocks a weary, bewildered eye and makes a feeble attempt to fly. It's quite content with the state that it's in, but it's not the duck that it might have been. Do you ever feel like you're not the duck that you might have been? Do you ever look around your uh, life and see people, and are you haunted by the fear that you will never be what God has meant you to be? I had a young lady ask me earlier this week, it's Sunday, so that would have been last week, what scares you, Pastor Jordan? And I said, every night before I go to bed, I am completely terrified. And I have to pray to the Lord and ask him to take it away. Every night, I just, I have this mini freak out, and then I go to bed. This is the way it goes. And what I find is, sometimes that happens because I'm preoccupied with the things of the passing world and not content with the God who owns the things of the passing world. And sometimes I feel, and maybe you're like this, I live in the barnyard because we do live with the mucks. And I wonder if I could be soaring or am I soaring? And I ask God this, am I soaring for you, Lord? Do I put aside sin and this worldly weight that holds me down or do I cling to it? Do you ever wrestle with that or am I kind of by myself this morning? I'm okay if I'm by myself because I think, I think there's, there's words here for us because we all wrestle with this truth. And in Titus, we find it's only by Christ and his free gift of grace that is lavished upon us over and over again that God longs for us to enjoy life. You don't have to look at your life right now and just lull through it. This life is to be lived with joy And we can find life filled to the fullest when we embrace this grace that Paul talks about to Pastor Titus. This is the grace that God has been given to you. And this is an amazing truth. Look at verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, book of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared. What? Like, just... Let that resonate in your soul. The grace of God has appeared. The Old Testament uh, people would have read that verse and they would have said, thank you, Lord, that your grace has appeared. We look at it, we're so passive with it, aren't we? Like we just go to the next. We're like, oh, comma, next word. No, the grace of God has appeared and not just appeared, it didn't show up and condemn us. John 3, 17 The grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ and it has brought salvation, not condemnation for all people. Yes, amen? Like that's good news, okay? So so Paul unpacks first and foremost what God's grace does. Look at uh, verse 11, let's break this down. He's already talked about godly living, what it looks like to 
Live a life that's going to be honoring and glorifying to the Lord when you embrace this truth. The gospel, good news, Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose again. If you confess your sin, repent of that sin, do a 180 degree turn from that sin, trust Christ in faith, you will be saved. And now he shifts and he uses this word for. And he says for explaining how it is possible for believers in verse 10 to adorn the doctrine of God rather than dishonor it. So Paul's prayer for Titus, which is also the prayer for the church, then and now, is that they would live out this grace, that they would honor the Lord in all they think, say, and do. We can only do that by God's grace. It is the central aspect of God's truth which demands godly living. So we ask, right? Well, well, God, what's so amazing about grace? What is so great about this grace? Well, if you go back into chapter one, verse one, in the book of Titus, grace is the word charis. And you can circle that even in verse 11. And it is the offering of kindness in regards to salvation It is an unbelievable gift of forgiveness of sin and the opportunity to live forever. So grace is twofold. Grace is an opportunity in the here and now, but it is also an opportunity to live forever. To obtain the grace of God requires faith. Now, I know you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You're the one of heroes. I get it. I understand. And you have it memorized probably in the King James Version of the Bible or the ESV Version of the Bible, but the New Living Translation says it really interestingly. It says, God has saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for that. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that you have done, so none of us can boast about that. We are guilty, if you go back in the Old Testament, by the moral and legal law. If I read the Old Testament correctly, if I walk through that ancient text in a proper way, I will see how much of a sinner I am, and I will also see how great of a God he is who has sent Jesus to fulfill all of that law. Grace cannot be earned by works. It is free. We know this. It's undeserved favor because of Christ's work on the cross. We don't discover God's grace, though. It relentlessly pursues us, not just so that you would accept Jesus as Savior. It relentlessly pursues you even when you trust Christ as Savior. Some of us think the grace of God is just given when we believe But the grace of God continues, it teaches, and we'll talk about that in just a second. This grace has shone upon us, Paul says. It became visible to us because of what Christ did. What the Old Testament law could not do, God's grace is doing here and now. And you are becoming bored with this because you're not infatuated with this. You're becoming complacent with this because you take this for granted like a loved one. My dad uh, just uh, buried his brother just this past weekend. And my mom, I called her. I said, how's dad doing? And she said, he keeps saying, I can't believe my brother is dead. I can't believe my brother is dead. Did we take that relationship for granted? Did we make the most of the time that we had? This grace has appeared. This this grace given to us by God has appeared. We see Jesus manifested in our life every single day. 
If you go back in the New Testament, Jesus healed a man who was invalid, meaning he was sick for 38 years. You know what he says to him? I love this. He looks at the guy in John chapter five, verse 14. You don't have to go there. He says, see, you were made well. Don't you love Jesus? Like, look what I did, right? And then he says to him, because I did this, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. In other words, Jesus is warning him, don't waste God's grace on your life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul pleads with the believers in Corinth not to receive the grace of God in vain. Amazing things happen about grace from God that is freely offered to us through forgiveness. It is an open door. And how tragic is it for us as believers to reject that teaching grace? And how tragic is it for you who sit here week after week and reject this offering of a spiritual fortune? Everything that you need to obtain a life of godliness is found in the richness of his grace. It transforms your life. So in order to, uh, to avoid disgrace, you accept God's grace. So if you're here today and you've had, accepted God's grace, it is open to you. It brings salvation. Now, not only salvation, though, it brings transformation. Look at the second part of verse 11. God's grace hasn't just appeared, but it also brings salvation for all people. Now, if you would, circle that word salvation. Really interesting. It means delivering or rescuing in both justification of sin and sanctification. Those are two big words church uses all the time. We just assume everybody knows what they mean. Justification is that you were dead in your trespasses and somebody justified you. It's like when you go to the judge and you have a speeding ticket and he says somebody already paid that ticket, you're justified, right? Sanctification is the process where you become like that person who, who paid that debt that you owed. And so if God has paid a great debt through the death and resurrection of Christ, we conform to it. It either brings acceptance or rejection. You reject God's grace, it welcomes his wrath. If you accept God's grace, it leads, now follow with me here, church. If you have accepted God's grace, it should lead you to constantly saying no to ungodliness and to worldliness. It should lead you to say no to the desires of yourself. It should lead you to be upright. It should lead you to be godly here and now, not waiting for that to happen for eternity. Somebody told me this the other day. They said, when I get to heaven, I'll be perfect. So we can just do whatever we want now. I said, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense to do that. Why would you wait for an eternity when the riches is right in front of your face? Adrian Rogers says it like this. He says, um, The grace is both the desire and the ability to do God's will. So church, okay, those of you who have confessed your sin, believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, let me just ask you a question. Do you have this in your life? The desire and the ability to do the will of God. If this is not your sole aim, I question your salvation. I question if you've really made a decision to follow Jesus. Spurgeon said, grace itself has a discipline to it. And it's a wonderful training power. I can't tell you how many things God has taken away in my life that is frustrating. But it's needed. And the manifestation of grace is preparing us for the manifestation of the glory to come. If you came to Christ simply so that you could consume, you missed it. 
Because Jesus says, if you come to me in a relationship with me, I'm going to mold you. I'm going to shape you. I'm going to strip you down. It's like uh, the renovations of a house, right? I'm going to bring you down to the studs, and then I'm going to build you back up. And it's going to be great. Bethany and I are doing some uh, modifications on our house, and people keep saying it's going to be great. And I'm sitting there going, I don't think so. Right? I don't know when this is going to happen. When does, this, when does this manifest itself, right? Soon. Stop. Don't tell the pastor soon. He knows that already. Right? That's ridiculous. Stop using that word with me. When we fully understand the grace of God, it is two things. One, a joyful offering of salvation. Lord, strip me down to the studs. Two, a welcoming to teach us as believers how to live and what to live for. This grace has brought salvation, Paul says to Titus, to all men, it's universally available now. One day it will cease. God is extending his hand. He is welcoming people to him. At the other hand, he's withholding his wrath. One day, both those hands will drop. What's so amazing about grace? What isn't? To avoid disgrace, you accept and grow in the grace of God. Now, what does that look like to grow in the grace of God. Good question, because so many of us who are here today, we believe in Jesus. We've trusted in faith. We have this justification of our sins, but we're not growing in grace. So what does it look like to go and grow in grace? <clears throat> 12. This grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. When? Say it. When? Now. Wait, what? I thought I trusted Christ, then I go to heaven. Isn't that how it works? That says now, in this present age, while you wait for your blessed hope, while you wait for the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You remember him, the one who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness. Isn't it amazing that we have to remind ourselves, oh yeah, Christ died on the cross for our sins. Oh yeah, Christ gives grace to sanctify us or purify us for himself, a people of his own possession who are zealous or passionate for good works. Isn't that ridiculous? You got to remind yourself of the good things all the time. Some of you are married. You get this all too well, right? You got to look hard at your spouse and go, oh, yeah, I do love you, right? We did have a good wedding, didn't we? I do need to do things better for you. Okay, declare these things, 15, exhort them and rebuke with all authority. Now, I love the end of 15. We'll get there in just a second. But it says, let no one disregard you. What is he talking about here? Okay, what does the grace of God teach? Well, God's grace at the core leads us as believers to say no. It's like the D.A.R.E. program, right? Just say no. Like we're good at teaching kids to say no to drugs, but we're not good at teaching kids to say no to things that are ungodly. Now, you don't have to turn there, but Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, this is a great illustration. In verse 24, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may be, says, by faith, Moses grew up. Oh, oh, oh. What did he do? It grew up. Some of us need to grow up. And he refused as he grew up and matured to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. How many times do you think Moses had to correct somebody? Like, oh, you're an Egyptian. No, I'm not. Right? Oh, you're, 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 you're the Pharaoh's daughter. No, I'm not. 
He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. How many of us do that? Moses, Hebrews 11, this is not my words. Hebrews 11, he chose willingly. He disciplined himself willingly to share the oppression of God's people who were slaves at the time instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because Moses thought it would better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. That's, that's Hebrews. So we say yes, as believers, if we've received God's grace to that which makes us righteous in God's eyes. Grace isn't just what saves us, but it instructs us and it disciplines us and it provides and produces in us power in our lives. The word is like educating children. God's saving grace is a training grace. And somewhere we miss this in the church. It makes every person's life sound in doctrine in every respect. And those who refuse to submit to God's discipline by obeying his laws experience God's discipline through his wrath and judgment. But believers welcome God's teaching. So God help me, how am I supposed to grow in this grace? What does it look like to be taught in this grace? If I'm a student here of grace, of the school of grace, what am I supposed to be taught? What does it look like in my everyday life? Make this practical, Pastor Paul. (laughs) Well, God's grace, first of all, is gonna help you deny ungodliness and worldly lust. That's verse 12. Now let's break that down word by word. The word deny means literally that you would say no. Say no. Like, seriously, say it. Say no. See how easy that is? <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so simple, but it's so hard. It's so difficult, right? It is the refusal to consent to something, reject something offered. To deny is when somebody is conscious and purposeful in their actions, turning away from that which is ungodly or destructive. Believers deny ungodliness, and that word means anything that seeks to deny God's existence as a right to being the supreme ruler of this world. If he's the one who's really in control, then we don't uh, look at things that would deny his existence. We don't, um, we, we're careful with that. And two, worldly lusts, passions for pleasures or pursuits of this present passing world. That was a lot of peace. Here's how this breaks down. It is not what you have in this world that's the problem. It is when the things of this world control and lead you away from the living God. And that can be possessions and people. It can be both. Hebrews chapter 11, go back to verse 24. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He found rest in faithfully trusting the promises of God. Do you? Let me just ask you a question, church. Is this enough? Like, is, is, is this enough? We, we were just talking about this with our kids. We were like, if the house is on fire, I don't know how we got here. But we're like, if the house is on fire, what do you grab? And our youngest, bless her heart, said, I grab my Bible. And I think she said that because she's heard us talk about it. And, I, and I'm still wondering, I'm curious, like, would you really grab your Bible or are you grabbing that teddy bear? Because I know how important that teddy bear is to you, right? And so little small piece of me is like, I want to set a room on fire just to see what happens. 
Because we say something, right? But while you do something else, right? <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I'm sorry. I know it's been a, it's been a long week, but I, I wouldn't set my kid's house on fire, I promise. This is my house. That'd be weird. All right. <laughs> I'm just envisioning it in my mind. She's like, Dad, you set my room on fire? <laughs> decisions that you make today. What decisions will you make today? Just think about it. Just think about all the decisions that you're going to make today, including the things that you deny will determine the rewards of tomorrow. And I don't mean monetary rewards. I mean the things of God that he rewards. Grace empowers us to deny what is temporary for what is eternal. Spiritual meaning of this passage means that you push us to say goodbye to the former ways of life and enter a completely new quality of life for our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here, let's just pause for a second because this happens, right? This, we're, we're all doing this. We're all looking at somebody who's not ourselves. We read the Bible all the time like this, right? I just read this book the other day. I passed along to a guy in our church. I said, hey, man, I think I read this book for you. And as soon as I texted it, I thought, no, I read that for me too. I'm so sorry. But uh, we read this passage and we think about other people and we point fingers. And Paul's pushing Titus for all the believers here in this text and now to examine themselves. Ask themselves, what are you tethered to that is temporary And if you are seeking a life that is cultivating an eternal, heavenly mindset. In in 2 Chronicles, way in the Old Testament, chapter 16, verse 9, it says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And I ask myself that all the time. God, because of your grace, am I fully committed to you? And if I am fully committed to you, do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're strengthening me? See, you guys have like problems at at work and and problems in the home and you have problems all over the place because I do too because we're all human. And we look at that and we wonder, is God really committed to us? And he asks us in return, he said, are you committed to me? I'll strengthen you. I'll move in your life. It might not be in the ways that you want to be uh, me to move, but man, I'll do amazing things if you would strengthen your heart and be fully committed to me because of the grace that has been given. Okay, so God's grace, first and foremost, helps us in denying that which is not of him and what we lust after that is not beneficial to us. And then he says in verse 12 that God's grace demands that we live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Now, it's interesting here. If you look in verse 12, second part, that word live, that means to enjoy life as God intended it. It is to live for the glory of God under his grace. Jesus bought us, it says in the New Testament, from slavery, and he gives us this Holy Spirit, his spirit. He puts his spirit in us, and he says, because you have my spirit, you're going to be motivated to live as God intended that's a fulfillment, if, if you don't know, in Ezekiel chapter 36, Old Testament passage. It says, I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. That's his part. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's our part. So God has a part, and we have a part, right? And believers are called to live. Now, let's, let's walk through these two terms. Circle that word sober. 
or sensibly in a self-controlled way. In other words, ready for this? You're to be rational. How many people you know are irrational? Let's name them out loud. You are to deny impulses. You, you as God's people are not irrational people. You are logic. If, so, if, you, if you explain to somebody the doctrines of God and they look at you and you go, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? You go, no. That is sensible. That is the truth. That is something that God has given us. He has given us, number two, to live righteously. He says, I want you to live righteously. You can circle that word. In such a way where your conduct cannot be condemned. Truly righteous people recognize that God has a right upon their life. I hear this all the time. People say, I have my rights. No, you don't. If you came to God in a relationship with Christ, your rights went flying out the window. You renounced all those rights. I hear this with people who are married. They say, she doesn't listen. He doesn't listen. It's me. I have my rights. No, you became one. There's not your rights and her rights. It's one. And both of you are sacrificing for the other person. Okay? And you're submitting all of yourself to God. You are committed constantly to the relentless pursuit of elimination of sin. Anything that displeases God. That's what it means to be, un, uh, to be godly in the present age. Brian uh, Chappell says it a little bit better than this. He says, the goal of the godly, those who have accepted God's grace in their life, is to adorn the gospel. That's verse 10. With the credibility and evidences of its power in their lives. The Bible calls us to even enslave ourselves, put ourselves in submission, is another way to say that, to what is disadvantages, <laughs> to us so that others will be freed. Freed from what? Freed from slavery of their own sin. If our lives exhibit no freedom from the passions of this world, then our lives essentially say that the gospel makes no sense. Really? I was talking to uh, somebody the other day about the Amish. And I said, the Amish people dumbfound me because there's no evangelism in their, in their walk. I said, how do I become Amish? Still, still curious about that, right? Like, that looks appealing to me. I'd like to be one of you. How do I do that? Oh, I don't know. Where's the evangelism, right? Where's the wanting to be one of us? We look at other people and we say, you should be one of us. We're crazy. I mean, we're, we have lost our minds, for this gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and when we lost our minds, we became fanatical about this grace that was lavished upon us. We realized that there's freedom from so many things that we struggled with in that gospel. The more infatuated we become with God's grace, the more he frees us from the sins that we struggle with in this world. The more we're infatuated with God's grace, the more that he gives um, hope to people who grieve, the more that he gives passion to people who have no purpose, right? Our lives... Make a difference when we are underneath the gospel of Jesus Christ. We start to live soberly. We start to live in a way that makes sense. We start to live righteously. We were once crooked people, and now we know the path on how to make it straight. We were once uh, active in this present age, and now we are living underneath the Lord, and we are waiting until he returns to call us home. And so we render or give up to God 
reverence, worship over every aspect of our life. Somebody said to me the other day, they said, I love the worship at your church. You know what they meant to say? They meant to say, I love the music at your church, which is a great head nod to my wife. I had nothing to do with that. I would love for somebody to come up to me and say, I love the way your church worships in the world. Whoa. How would that make a difference to our society and our community? Look at the last thing he says in verse 13. He says, God's grace tells us to look for our blessed hope and glorious appearing. We're looking too much in the rearview mirror. We need to look out of the windshield. You're looking too much at your past. You gotta look at your future. We love to see what we've done wrong, but we hate to see what God can do through us because of the wrong that we've done. To look for really means to wait as one waits for one to welcome them with open arms. My, my mom, we weren't able to go to my um, uncle's funeral. And I said, how was it? How did it go? Which is really a stupid question. It was a funeral. And she said, it was so nice because everybody there was family and we were just welcomed with open arms. And I just thought, man, what, how great will it be to, to go to heaven, to not have to overthink things anymore, to not have to think about all the things that are transpiring in this world, to just be uh, with the family of God singing holy, holy, holy. Like, how amazing will that be? Believers under grace are waiting for that. Our heavenly Father, welcome us with open arms when all this life is over, this blessed hope. You should underline that 16 times in your Bible. He isn't a hope so, he isn't a wish so, he isn't a possibility, he is a sure and certain hope just as the sun rises, which it doesn't, the earth rotates. <laughs> God is good. And his glorious appearing shines upon us to judge both the living who are saved and the dead. G. Campbell Morgan, man, I love him. He says, I never begin my work in the morning without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. I'm not looking for death, I'm looking for him. Christ came first in humility, church. He's going to come vastly different again. Revelation chapter one, verse seven says, behold, in other words, wake up, open your eyes, open your ears. He's coming again with the clouds. They've declared it for 2,022 years and we're gonna declare it until he comes back again soon. Every eye is going to see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn over him. And they're going to say, man, I wish we would have not wasted our time. To be what God intended will be glorious. To do what God purposed is glorious. We enjoy this life when we obediently follow God because of his grace that has been poured out in constant, full anticipation of the physical presence of Christ coming in glory will dwell in heaven forever and have his full glory on display at all times. Turn on the lights. Make it bright. Now, circle that word glory which borrows language from the Old Testament, and it describes the brilliance or radiance of God. This has been my prayer all week. I hope you can pray it too as well, that God would open my eyes to the brilliant, radiant light of God. It refers to a weightiness, a heaviness, all the combined attributes that are unexplainable by any human mind. In other words, one day, a day will come when that full glory will be undeniably revealed. It won't be a secret that only we as believers know, 
but it will be open on the wor- for the world to see. And we will finally at that day get to look at everybody and point our fingers at them and go, told you so. I told, I told you, right? And unbelievers will cringe. If you are here and you don't have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, you will cringe in the terror at the appearance of the holy God. One person will be on their knees in worship and another person will be on their knees in terror because the hands have dropped. And we ask, what side will you be on? Look at verse 14. This is all because God gave himself up for us so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Your sin, whatever it is, can be broken. You gotta hear that, church. You are looking at it, you're this little duck walking around in the muck, right? And you're thinking to yourself, can anything free me from that sin? And the answer is yes, God's grace can. And God's grace will, but you gotta do your part, You just don't sit there and say, God, lavish your grace upon me. Free me from the bonds of sin. He's like, well, okay, I can do that. you got to take the chains off, right? My dog has an electric dog collar. Super funny. Um, I've never abused, okay, I abused it once. And his battery goes dead. His battery just, just goes dead. And he doesn't know that he is free from that little electronic circle. He just sits, like, if he can go here, he'll, he goes here, and if it beeps, like, he knows, like, he's done, and then if he keeps going, it zaps him, and he just runs away, and it's, it's super funny, but he's learned that he can only go to there unless the battery dies. And if the battery dies, he can go further. But he's lived so much of his life with this electronic collar around his, his neck that even if the battery dies, he thinks he can't go any further. That's exactly what Satan does for us. He says, the collar's still on and the battery's still active. Don't move. And God says, by grace, I didn't just take the collar off. I threw it in the trash and I lit it on fire. I declared all these things. And so you, Paul, tells Titus to the Cretan believers and all of us today, declare these things. Church, speak these things. I'm free because of the grace of God. I exhort these things. I rebuke people who don't live this way with authority. Don't let anybody look down on you. Yeah, I know who you once were. You're looking in my rear view. You need to see out my windshield. Don't let anybody look down on you because you are declaring the truths of God. Even if you fall, even if you sin, even if you stumble, these truths are still God's truth. So even if you're stumbling towards the finish line, God says, I've already crossed the finish line with Christ. And so Jesus came to set you free, to let you soar as you look for his coming. So get out of the mud. Do some flying. The victory's already been won. An unknown author wrote this. He says, when I was first saved, and some years afterward, the second coming of Christ was like a thrilling idea. This blessed hope, this glorious promise, this theme of some of the most inspiring songs of the church. We sing about it. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Later, I got older, I started maturing, and I accepted the tenet of the faith, this doctrine, a kind of invisible trademark of my ministry. It was a favorable arena of theological discussions. We talked about it all the time. We talked about it in the pulpit. We talked about it in print. We talked about it over coffee. And now, suddenly, the second coming means something more to me. The day I read, Paul called it the blessed hope 
was the day it appeared as the only hope for this world. From the human standpoint, from the news sources to the social media feeds, there's no solution for the problems of this world. Nobody has any hope anymore. We've lost it all. And if we have no hope, then let's just live life the way that we want to live it. And let's just let bygones be bygones. Leaders seem to be completely frustrated in trying to deal with unrest. Leaders seem to be completely frustrated in the increasing violence in society. And so they just welcome it and they say, it is what it is. But the only complete and permanent solution for the problems that are present in this world is found in the return of Christ and the grace of God, which he lavishes to those who would believe in him. When he comes, he will set up his kingdom and he will rule the nations in righteousness and we will live forever with him. And in order to live forever with him, we must declare the truth from the prophet Habakkuk chapter two. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. You go sin, but for me and my house, I will sin no more. As the waters cover the sea, so the grace of God covers me. And I will live underneath that umbrella of grace until God returns, striving to honor him in all that I think, say, and do. I will keep praying, I'll keep working, I'll keep watching, and I'll keep letting God's grace drip, drip, drip into my life and do what it does best and teach me more and I'll conform to the image of Christ every single day and when the blessed hope comes, the hope for this world comes, I will fall into his arms for eternity. He will welcome me home and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray for you. God, every Sunday, I consider it an honor and a joy to proclaim your truth, and I never know if it's my last one. I never know if this is, this is the end. I never know if we'll, if we'll ever get another shot. So God, as we are gathered here today and we're hopeful for the return of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we as a church praise your name and know that people may be present here today that don't have a relationship with you. So I would ask and I would plead, God, that those people who are here, that you would just knock so hard on the door of their heart that they would humble themselves, confess their sin, and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. They would eliminate pride in their life. They would accept the gospel, the good news, that you came not as a condemnation but as a salvation. Your blood that was shed on the cross is sufficient for the entire world, but is only efficient for those who would believe. So I just pray, God, for those people who are far from you, who are gathered here in this house, who are listening online, would come to the saving faith and trust the grace that has been given to us. For you love the world so much, you gave your only son, that whosoever would believe in you would not perish, but have everlasting and eternal life. God, I pray that you just strip those people down to the studs. For those of us who are here, Lord, who know you, we've accepted this, this justification through faith. With longing hearts, we watch and we wait and we pray for that great day of days. And as this world grows darker, we just ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to the promised return of your son and that that would just become brighter and brighter and brighter so that all we see is the glory of God on full display. 
We ask that you would train us today to renounce ungodliness and the worldly passions. If you're here this morning, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You know what that is. In your heart, plead to the Lord and ask him, God, help me through the power of your Holy Spirit to renounce ungodliness and these worldly passions that are holding me down. God, we pray that you would help us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Regardless of whether or not it is popular. We wait for you, obediently wait for you, our blessed hope. We wait for the appearing of our glory, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all of these things. So God, this morning, I plead as your servant for myself and for the people who are gathered here that you would purify us, Lord, through your grace. As you have set a table before us and as we participate in that table, that you would set us apart as a people for your own possession. Make all of us passionate to declare these things boldly. To exhort and to rebuke with authority let no one disregard us as your followers. In faith and in trust, we ask that you would help us to be obedient to your grace in all we think, say, and do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.